Hello and welcome back to the third volume of, oh man, I forgot to bring my drink outside. Well, shoot. Okay, where am I going to put this? Why is this wet? Sorry, I thought I was settled. Ah, it's another gorgeous day outside, so I moved outside. Um, this is for volume three of To All My Darlings, where we're um, diving even more into Miss McIntosh, My Darling. Um, parts one through three, we looked at a, a recap of the story, characters, and some of the relationships or the dynamics that seem to be going on, taking place in the novel, and some themes. I'm sure there's much more. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there is. I mean, I haven't read through the book to try and just look at the interplay between the characters. But there's something definitely there, and I had touched on what, what, the, what seemed obvious to me at the time. Um, so this part, I was going to be working at my computer, but this part, starting with this part, part four, um, I'm just going to be going over summaries of essays, interviews, and articles about Margaret Young. And some of it's going to, well, that's a typo, and correcting my typos. And um, there should just be typos. Um, I shouldn't have too much to like rewrite or add to it. So I figured it's a nice day. Actually, the rest of the week is going to be really nice. So I'll probably be sitting outside and doing it this way. All right, let's get started. We're on part four, Marguerite Young's essays, interviews, and articles. Writings by Young or about Young and Miss McIntosh, my darling, are included here to provide valuable insight into Young's writing. I tried to pick stuff that seemed relevant to Miss McIntosh, my darling. There's, there's uh, more stuff that was added. I mean, all of her writings, and she said all of her writings focus on one theme. In my mind, the theme, I think it, it's loss or um, uh, illusions versus reality, which uh, came up in part. Uh, in the podcast, uh, last podcast, my, actually the first podcast of this volume three. Um, so that came up a little bit. And so I'm sure there, there are things there. I definitely looked at, you know, just looking over her collective poems, definitely stuff there. So, so I tried, I, I picked that stuff, but I picked and choose what I wanted to put in here. The following are excerpts taken from several of the essays in the 1994 book Inviting the Muses, which was published after a new edition of Miss McIntosh, My Darling. After a new edition of Miss McIntosh, My... Okay, hold on. Which? Let's see if I got this right. Essays in the 1994 book Inviting the Muses, which was published after a new edition of Miss McIntosh, My Darling, was released by Dalkey Press. And yes, we're still waiting for the new DocuPress edition, hopefully June 2023. So this essay was called The Midwest of Everywhere. Young describes the Middle West as a fantastic state of mind, an unknown geographic terrain, an amorphous substance, the ghostly interplay of time with space, the cosmic, the psychic, as near to the North Pole as the Gallup Pole. She says, which is right, the Gallup Pole says, oh, claims to know what's going on in the Middle West. And they said, yeah, that's about as relevant as, you know, having something about the North Pole. She says, as a Middle Westerner herself, there is no middle way. She says she is in love with whatever is eccentric, devious, strange, singular, unique, out of this world. 
I put my cat outside so he could be with me. And he is just being hilarious. Okay, sorry. She says America has not yet been discovered in that romantic light which is a conspiracy of poetry, history, philosophy. She says the Middle West is oceanic. She then lists some things that will show up in Miss Macintosh, my darling, such as a Ford car and a journeyman hangman. Young says mythologies flourish in the Middle West, both revealed and hidden. It is unknown terrain, but life itself and undefinable. The physicist looking down into this crucible and dissolving vista becomes himself a part of the dissolving vista. Imagination and memory create with other incalculable factors the transient world we, as transients, live in. Young imagines all the uninhibited dramas taking place alongside the daily routines of life. The Middle West slides thus into a kind of philosophical space inhabited by crystal, crucial, sorry, inhabited by crucial symbols. Every Middle Western village I know of is a complexus of marvelous events, both seen and unseen. So much of life is fiction, the dream within the dream. The Middle West is filled with the most beautiful imaginary people, both living and dead, both born and unborn, both far and near. There are places where that dream emerges into reality, places like heaven on earth. Young describes several sleepy villages. To Young, the Middle West is a fabric of dreams where Kantian extremes, irreconcilable antinomies, antinomies like utopias, meet and part and meet again. Oh good, we're going to get into Kant later. For Young, the Middle West is ultimately a wild, hazardous, romantic experience of the individual and human character in juxtaposition with the coldness of the universe, an experience, an experience made all the more wonderful by being invisible. I think that's the best sentence that applies to Miss McIntosh, my darling. The Middle West is ultimately a wild, hazardous, romantic experience of the individual and human character in, in juxtaposition with the coldness of the universe, an experience made all the more wonderful by being invisible. Young's final words are on the middle uh, Young's final words on the Middle West are everywhere is everywhere. There is nothing superficial but a superficial, mediocre view of it. All exotic knowledges must be brought into relation with our subject, which is finally an amorphous geography, the human soul. So she gave it, so I love the way she described the Middle West. Um, uh, there's nothing, that, like I said, that one part that I read twice, that I think was probably one of the best examples of describing how it is in her mind and refers to Miss McIntosh, my darling. However, I am going to, I did pick apart the regions as they were represented in the novel through the characters and it's not that great. The way, the way it ends up being portrayed. Um, in contrast to the stereotypical way that it, the middle, the Midwest is usually portrayed in America, um, I think is important. And I think it's really contrasts even with how she saw the middle West. So it'll be interesting to see. I'll have to keep that in mind when I get to the different regions uh, in the book, when we look at the different regions. 
Complex life and complex letters. Young talks about literature as our nightlife, our dream life. She says theologians used to say that God was always dreaming. Everything was a dream in the mind of God. God may be the greatest fiction writer of all time. She says the fantasy of literature can never keep pace with the fantasy of life. Young wonders when literary critics will understand that life is complex. The literature which expresses it must also be complex. She says one of the great pleasures of reading is the mind oscillates between the reality and the phantom and that the mind recognizes its oscillation. She confesses that she is not sure where reality ends and unreality begins. She wishes that modern literature was not dismissed as experimental, surrealistic, impressionistic, artificial life of our experience. The greatest realism is neither plain nor simple but the knowledge that the cosmic and the psychic are all mixed up in one elusive pattern. Young complains that critics look for literature which will not be dangerous. They want a few easily recognizable human types, plots, happy endings. Everything is to be very direct. She continues to criticize literary critics. I wish the common sense critics would read for something more than the story and the character and the plot. I wish they would read for the themes which give these matters their importance. Is not the world we live in partly make-believe too, like the many phantasmagoric worlds of literature in the other side of the looking glass? Just as our daily reality is posited on many illusions, so is literature, which is, after all, only an aspect of this devious life. She describes conservative critics as the lovers of the mediocre. I love the way that she talks about literature. I love the way that she uh, is looking how looking at critics who have been given authority to evaluate literature and the one thing especially from reading the ninth street women which is looking at the abstract art that developed out of the new york school uh motherwell and and hans hoffman um and i actually got to go to pittsburgh museum and see some of those like we saw joan mitchell abstract which was gorgeous um that, that just super interesting because Miss McIntosh, because Miss McIntosh, because Marguerite Young lived in New York and lived around lived there around that time, um, so she had to have been influenced. I mean, I, I have no no um, biographical information of wh who she talked to and what she did. Maybe it's in her correspondence. Um, uh, with the papers that are in at the Yale Library, I've talked to them, but there is there are no there's no category there's no like letter which this doesn't make any sense to me. Um, there's no they're like oh look at the listing it's just this correspondence from A to you know okay this this box this folder has correspondence from from with people from a, whose last names are A to B or A to C, and it's like that tells me nothing. <laughs> I was like I don't know who she talked to. So I could only get so many folders scanned and sent to me. I thought about making a trip out there to go, but it would be, it, it would, well, it would take definitely more than one trip. And you would have to sit there and go through everything, which I don't mind doing at all. I would love to. I don't understand why it hasn't been scanned, so I can just look at it online. Like, there's a very small portion. Okay, well, I did get a, an answer. Uh, what is copyrighted cannot be scanned, so it cannot be made public. Great. Okay, fine. Because like, somebody's going to sit there at a computer and read. Maybe, I don't know, but, you know, there's libraries, there's ebooks. That stuff is available. Ugh. So, anyways, um, uh, the correspondence would be interesting. I would be interested in looking. That there was some letter that was written that I know uh, another reviewer did a great review on Miss Macintosh, My Darling. Um, 
said he saw where the where and this is where I get my uh, uh, idea of of her not liking the way the Esther long tree is not a metaphor for motherhood and she really got upset about that and he you know posted some of that because he did go to Yale and look at her letters and he did uh, post about some of that in his review which is awesome and so I really would like to but when I talk to them I could get I don't know there's I could get ten ten or eleven folders scanned. There's like, there's hundreds of folders. It's like, then what do you pick? And if I can't narrow it down to, to her reactions to, uh, to things about her, uh, about Miss McIntosh that were written, uh, reviews or criticisms of she, I, I, that's what I'm looking for. I'm because that way I can glean what she thought her work represented. That's what I'm interested to know. Anyways, they don't have a clue. They don't know. They don't know what's in there. I would just have to, okay, I'll take these 10 folders and maybe I'll be lucky. Uh, or I have to go down there and visit. And I don't know. So now I'm on the fence about doing any of that. So I should just ask for the 10 folders. It's going to take three weeks for it to get to me anyway. So I should just ask for 10 random folders and see what happens. Maybe I'll do that. Um, <clears throat> so, oh, where was I? Oh, I really liked, so I really liked because she objected, I know she objected to, to Miss McIntosh and my darling being classified as uh, experimental. I know she didn't like that. She said it's classical. When you look at the, it's based entirely as far as I can figure out on classical philosophy. It starts with the very first philosopher that's recognized or acknowledged as, I can't remember the name, Salinas, Salinas, something like that. Uh, we'll, we'll get to that part. I've written so far 100 pages about the philosophy of Miss McIntosh, my darling. So um, we'll get there. And she just basically runs through runs through classical philosophy, and besides mythology, besides everything else. That to me seems to be the structure of the book. What holds it? What she's using to hold it together. So um, I love the way she recognizes life is complex. Oh, and so the reason all of this is resonating with me is because of the uh, World War II that she lived in through New York, the, the, the artist community in New York City had a very visceral reaction to it and reaction to fascism and the rise of fascism because, because they, that was saying that we define what art is, this is fascism, we define what art is, art serves a purpose, it has to be realistic, it has to make sense, it has to look like it, look like what we see. Like it has to, it has to be that. And I think with Marguerite Young, and I think that's so important for the rest of people that were challenging that perception, especially after photography came about, because once photography came in about, what was the need for realistic painting? Like, where does art go with there? You can say that you, you'd like something like I, I, I'm looking at the fall trees and I really admire that. And would I paint that? Of course I would. It's nature. It looks wonderful. This is how I show my love for this object. I'm painting it. So there's definitely that aspect of it. Um, but the, the artists there question that. Why? Why am I having to do this? This doesn't mean, especially when you've now developed these weapons that can literally destroy life on Earth as we know it. So if, if that can, is possible, then what's the point? What's the point of doing all this? That had to have influenced Young when she lived there. I can't imagine it not influencing and because they were, the artists were all there, the poets, everybody was there at the time, uh, hanging out in cafeterias, which I still have no idea what that is in New York City, or what that used to be, uh, bars and everything. Not that she was ever into that kind of stuff, she just smoked. Um, 
but yeah, I, uh, I think that, uh, I think that's acknowledging the change in art styles, the way these, and I, and I understand there's this, um, massive, oh, what is it called? It's the fiction that's, that's the label for these massive books, these, these literature books that are thousands of pages long. And it, it was in the 20th century. It was considered a movement then, blah, 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 blah. I don't remember what the name of it is. <laughs> I just read about it. And Miss Macintosh, my darling, fits into that, kind of fits into that category. And um, so, that, so I love that criticism. Life is complex. What makes you think the literature wouldn't be com- complex? And that really is a slap in the face to those kind of governing, uh, the controlling governments, authoritarian dictatorships, that fascists, that kind of stuff, that, that they have to control all of that. They have to control what you do and what people put out there creatively. They have to control it. Otherwise, the narrative changes. And they don't want the narrative to change. And so I think that's a very subversive thing to say. Life is complex. Therefore, everything that human beings can create will be complex. It should be complex. If, it, if people are trying to make it simple, that's a problem. <laughs> if people are trying to simplify it and not uh, and look at it in, a, in, a, in that I know I'm being general, but if they try to simplify it and like it's, it is only this, this is how you define it. It is only this, then that's a problem. (laughs) Um, So yeah. So I really like her criticism. I think she's spot on with that. And I like that she addresses it towards conservative critics, uh, lovers of the mediocre, uh, mediocre. So yeah, I should paint something about that. I might. Uh, the World of Silence. Young wrote this essay for Flair Annual in 1952. She describes the world of the deaf and how that compares to the hearing. She gives short histories of famous people who were deaf. She advocates for their rights and that they be treated fairly with accommodations. And so that's why I'm not... Um, when she writes about deaf and blind uh, people in the book, Miss Macintosh, My Darling, she actually did research on it. I mean, she, she actually had some knowledge and basis for using them in her book. So I don't think it's exploitative in that measure because in that way, because she did, she did her homework. She reached out. She said she probably, you know, interviewed every deaf person in New York in, in, in another interview that we'll, we'll look at. So, um, so good, good on her. I think she's clear on that. The artist as wanderer. Young states the artist is always asking himself, what is reality and how much of it depends on man, his constitution of dreaming, sense, dreaming this world. He is a dedicated dreamer, exploring the dream, asking, is the dream real or is reality the dream or is there no reality but the dream? Reality encompasses many realities, many dreams of many individuals. Whatever artifice may seem to divide us, these dreams unite us in the great conspiracy of that super reality, which is man regardless of time or place. Perhaps all dreamers dream the same dreams, the dreams being essentially commonplace, even even in their seemingly wildest moments. Art is the deepest sense of the subjective, and yet it is impersonal, evolving through many symbols, many dreams, many myths of creation transcending the personal. One of the great informative myths of creation is that of the eternal child, the child who never dies, the child in all of us. 
She continues with the symbols of Christ and God, which are inexhaustible and infinite. She feels artists have a special affinity for the wandering Jew. The artist is the wanderer. He is forever in flight from symbol to symbol, dream to dream, conscious to unconscious, unconscious to conscious. She says movement is the essence of art as of life. Artists wander externally and internally. Art, by its very nature, is an act of faith, of affirmation. She would like people to place their faith in art, which cannot die as long as man endures. Art, which is the eternal child. Art, which is the man and the woman and the dream of creation. That's just beautiful. <laughs> That's just a beautiful. See, here I was talking about how important art is and, and, and individual creation. There she goes. She just answered it. So, so I... I uh, here was one is it's about Pat Pat Moore's poetry and since I then found out that there is a lot of hints to poetry in Miss Macintosh my darling I thought this uh, theory of knowledge was had some aspects that I also found in Miss Macintosh my darling so Coventry Pat Moore's theory of knowledge Young gives a critique of Pat Moore's poetry he is famous for his poem an angel in the house about the Victorian ideal of a happy marriage he converted to Catholicism. He employs sexual imagery to describe the union of the human soul with God. In Pat Moore's works, God becomes almost a negligible factor. God as God, if subtracted from that cosmos, would hardly be missed, for it would still be crowded richly with psychological data, and the music of the spheres would still be utilized to enshrine the minute of quiet domesticities and common connubiality. There is a substructure of material reality which can never be resolved into anything spiritual. Young compares some aspects of Child Roland to the Dark Tower came and Dante's Inferno. Religion seems only a way of excess and exploration. The intellectual substructure derived from atomizing, pulverizing psychology. The universe seems strangely devoid of God or spiritual grandeur, or God is a skeptic in the universe, almost an accidental quality. Man should not look through the telescope the reality. Man should not pry, not wander far from the obvious, familiar ways. The result is man's loneliness. Young thought what interested Patmore was the problem of the presence of the absent and the absence of the present, and the traffic with, with things that are not because they are gone by or not yet, and the psychologically minute which seems both interior and exterior, how a thing can be both out there and in the mind dissolving of subject-object polarities, body and soul, mind and matter. Young says Patmore believed he moved through, he moved between extremes of great and small, that the room which Patmore sits in is at the same time out there in his mind, the field of his consciousness, and that the science of physics may include phantoms and what William James calls congeries of wild data. Patmore is himself the borderline between two worlds, the parallel lines which he says meet sooner than we think. The problem, with every, the problem of every human being, the thing known, may be other in time and place and nature than the event or act by means of which the thing is known. The duality of the memory image and the past event seems to be inherent in what we mean by remembrance. The wistfulness of memory implies such duality that the past in being known still keeps its distance. Young talks about perspective distortions as in astronomy and the lag between sense data and transmission. Patmore did not, like other poets, invent a world of ideas to take the place of the world of ideas, a world of being as including all the actual or possible objects of thought, not only all that it has entered into mind of man to conceive, but all that an infinitely more comprehensive mind, such as God's, might conceive in the realm of possibilities. 
The wild data continue to behave in a wild manner. God has no function outside of time and space, the great individuators. There is nothing fixed. So I think a lot of that had, uh, a lot of that had uh, echoes in Miss Macintosh, my darling. Uh, feminine sensibility. Young argues in the Harvard Advocate. Hello, B. Yes, I know it's nice out, but go away. Um, Young argues in the Harvard Advocate in 1975 that characters are edged in mist and their realm is an unsubstantial territory, each character an aspect of another. She believed that sexual differences in writers dissolve because all one's being is necessary to the totality of vision and most particularly the maternal is that by which the cosmic form is made to evolve from chaos. She states she does not think there is any difference between the works of men and women writers and certainly do not think that women were limited to the literature of interhuman relationships. She believes that the poetic and psychological novel is a rarity in any time as it requires the ultimate of love of the word, the music of the unconscious coming into consciousness. She believes women were less protected than men, less in charge of their own fate, and still may be as they have not yet attained their liberation, yet all writers are unprotected, exposed to that reality from which others veal themselves by convention and habit. All right, we're going to end there. Uh, this is a pretty long, there's a lot of stuff, so we'll be reading more of these uh, interviews and articles um, for a while. All right, thank you for listening. Bye.